Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. The ACA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by Dr. Anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy, and politics of chiropractic, as well as reviewing the latest research and discussing how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice. Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. I'm your podcast host, Anthony Coxon. And welcome back to part two in our conversation with Anthony Nicholson about Mandy with her chronically stiff and painful neck. And really a deep dive into the neurology and the best way to manage this uh, very common case. Uh, if you missed the previous podcast, you're going to want to go back and have a listen to it because uh, I think the information in that will make uh, this podcast uh, far more enlightening. Now, Anthony Nicholson, um, as I said last time, uh, apart from being a, a chiropractor in Sydney, having certification in neurology and orthopedics, but he's also the head of uh, CDI, which is a leading provider of continuing education programs for chiropractors in Australia and New Zealand. Um, the ACA are really excited about a relationship that we're building with CDI that will see ACA members get access to these fabulous educational materials at a significantly reduced price. And there'll be more information about uh, that to ACA members uh, very soon. Today's conversation um, that covers the chronically stiff and painful neck is essentially one of the modules out of um, what is a 300-hour-plus um, program that uh, Anthony um, has with CDI, and you can take various bites out of this, just do a module or two or, or do the whole program. But as I said, the ACA will be providing more information to our members about that very, very soon. Uh, Anthony Nicholson, welcome back to the ACA podcast. Thank you very much, Anthony. Good to be back. So just as a very brief recap, so we've got um, Mandy here. She's a, uh, a previous gymnast. Uh, at an elite level, uh, she is getting some neck pain and some vague tingling, uh, particularly into a scapula and shoulder area. We spoke last time and went into the details, of course, about the case history there. We talked about input mechanisms and started to touch on uh, the central processing stuff, although that's the next thing we're going to dive into right now. We also talked about things like the fact that she's so flexible, um, the use of the Baton scale to understand why her little bit of degeneration might be uh, the reason that she gets some vague neurological type symptoms, even though they don't, they don't fit the classic ridiculous type of pattern. Um, but now I want to jump into the central processing and particularly talk about central sensitization, which I think might be important for this patient. Look, absolutely. I think to frame this back up again, I think for our listeners from last time, um, what we see here with Mandy is a very recognisable presentation and often a frustrating one because we've got Mandy who has a very mobile neck. When we examine her, she has normal ranges of motion. In fact, more than normal ranges of motion as we've established. Yet the paradox is she has chronic stiffness. Now, this is often the patient who has tried numerous approaches before. They have temporary relief, but then get aggravated again. They have a strong desire for more and more treatment. In fact, they're often encouraging you to do more and more types of mechanical-based treatments like manipulation on their neck. 
uh, because they end up with a craving for it, yet um, never quite get satisfaction. So it can be a little bit of a slippery slope in that regard. And especially when you consider that this is the very patient subset, the hypermobility group with potential instability over time, uh, in which we have to be very careful with using you know, movements towards end range or manipulating vertebral segments away from mid-position because of things like the vertebral artery and you know, potential nerve root insult, uh, cord considerations, all of that. So that's what I think makes this particular presentation so important when we consider what we do with the human neck. And so in part one, we looked at very much the nociceptive sources. So um, nociceptive inputs, the various pain generators in the neck, we teased those apart, looked at the major structural pain generators, differentiating between somatic and neurogenic sources. The other quick mention to make there with the sensory side or the inputs is proprioception, of course. And this is where we're looking past the neck's ability to generate structural pain and more to its role as a balanced organ. And in fact, I say this to my patients. I say, well, look, you may not have thought of the neck in this way, but the neck really should be considered an organ of balance in that the proprioceptive inputs are extraordinarily um, uh, rich and they go from spindles in the neck muscles uh, in many in many respects monosynaptically into the vestibular areas um, and cerebellum for postural stability and orientation. And so the neck could really be viewed as a sensory link between the head and body. I mean, we knew with very early studies, even in rats, and this is going way back, that an area called the entorhinal cortex or the entorhinal area of the brain had placed in grid cells where there were some neurons in there that were head direction cells. So that your ability to navigate your world depends upon knowing which way your head is pointing and especially knowing where your head is relative to your body. And so we have to have that vital information to form a reference of the space we're moving through to keep our visual world clear. And so when we start thinking about a patient like Mandy who has a very stiffened, uh, guarded neck, then we should be considering what that's going to do in terms of her balance, stability, postural control, things like that now. Um, and so that's the other major input mechanism to consider. And as we'll see soon, it's going to give us some logical explanations as to why she's getting dizziness, perhaps some blurry vision, uh, and then getting anxious about that. So, um, so we're now down to uh, once we've really considered what the neck is capable of in terms of pain generation and the sensory disturbance that's coming from poor proprioceptive reporting now, then we now need to start thinking upstream. And what is all of this doing to the neurology and the responsiveness of the central nervous system to the neck? So we know that you activate pain pathways over a period of time, that they upregulate and that you get sensitization and that pain is not purely a product of what is going in from the tissues, but rather an evaluative process by the brain. 
So the brain weights the significance of various inputs and weaves that together with all other credible information that the brain gets regarding the likelihood of threat or injury. And so um, the brain is working off uh, beliefs, previous diagnoses, explanations given by previous clinicians to determine how much protection is really needed for my structures. And if there is damage or degeneration, then I need to be more vigilant in that protection. So I, the brain has an ability to set the level of activation of the pain circuitry in the spinal cord through descending influences. So the brain really has a large dial control, if you like, uh, on the pain circuitry in the cord as to how much it will respond to what's happening in the structures peripherally. So here we see someone who's been frustrated by pain over a long period of time. Uh, Mandy's had a chronic stiff neck. She's now really occupying a much smaller subset of postures on a day-to-day -day basis. She has a lack of variability in the way she's using her neck, um, therefore leading to a shrunken understanding of the neck. And the brain is really starting to lose confidence in its ability to read it, stabilize it, control it, protect it. And so now we're getting some real central drivers of the, of the pain process as well. There's certainly, and you've pretty much outlined a lot of the uh, clues that Mandy may be experiencing central sensitization and just the fact that it's a, a chronic case would make you thinking that as well, but also the stress, the fact that she's had multiple uh, sources of care, the potential that there might be some autonomic things happening there. Do you just go by the case history or do you, in these sorts of cases, maybe use a... Um, uh, patient-rated outcome measure or something like a central sensitization scale that you might do to one measure where the central sensitization possibly is and maybe also to use that scale as a way of explaining this idea to, to Mary or a single patient? Oh, look, I think we're fortunate in that there are a lot of useful tools and metrics now and, and, and outcome measures for this. Um, and... There is a central sensitization instrument, um, which I do use sometimes. If, if you, uh, you know, often use it, if you want to really document a case, um, but a lot of the times, just understanding the main components of those instruments, you weave that into uh, your case history and your uh, assessment of the case anyway. And so, um, we do an entire program on. Uh, contextual factors with this and uh, so-called yellow flags and, and, and uncovering unhelpful beliefs and meaning perspectives. And so just it's going to be important with someone like Mandy to identify her beliefs regarding reasons for pain and de-linking, for example, too much emphasis of the anatomy. So, for example, patients like Mandy are often overly focused on structural causes of pain, so something that's damaged there, and that's a reason for ongoing pain. Now, I'm not discounting the role of the structures, but rather looking at, okay, what's the weighting? How much of a linkage is the patient formed between a degenerative change and pain? Because degeneration is not something that's going to go away. It's, going to, it's something that's going to get progressively worse. So if a patient has a strong link between a damaged or degenerated tissue and their pain, 
then it's unlikely they're going to see a way out. So I guess it's a, it, it comes down to reorienting a patient. So delinking structural damage and pain and relinking function and pain and talking more about deconditioning rather than degeneration, mm. simply because deconditioning can be reconditioned. It can be strengthened. Yeah. And so once we then start to reveal those beliefs, asking Mandy what she thinks and why she thinks she's getting ongoing pain, then we can start, I guess, with a conceptual change strategy and start getting her to understand why her brain might be overprotecting her neck. And the fact that the brain can decide how much or how little pain is necessary a lot of the time. And so I think we instruments are very good, but it's also good to weave those instruments through your history and examination anyway. Like it's sort of the fabric of what we do now. Yes. And I guess make it more relevant to the patient's direct experience. Exactly, exactly. And sometimes, you know, instruments are very good. Some people will find them, you know, uh, perhaps a little stressful in themselves and it's more the uh, rapport and therapeutic alliance with the clinician that's going to have a very strong impact there. Now, there are other objective measures of essential sensitization as well. For example, we know the, the neural tension test, the brachial plexus tension test, has been shown with studies to identify uh, centrally sensitized neurology following things like whiplash and things like that, and even in chronic neck pain, um, because a brain that's starting to become vigilant and a sensitized pain neurology is going to vigilantly protect neural tissue. So you might find that a lower degree of stretch or lengthening of neural tissue will be greeted by a stronger protective response if the brain's vigilant. So... Uh, that that can even be a, a good measure, in your module, and just a diffuse sensitivity, you know. Yes. In your module, you talk about uh, the central pain neuromatrix and how the pains and emotion, not just the sensation. I guess we really need to tap into these things and think about the words that we use and the other strategies beyond just the um, the, the physical ones uh, in helping Andy in this situation. Oh, look, absolutely. I think. There have been some very exciting advances in pain neuroscience and that are really relevant for clinicians. Um, I think we need to give thought with a patient like Mandy to how we set up the clinical encounter from the start uh, and the types of questions we ask, the way we examine Mandy. So someone who has central sensitization is really not going to respond to a very highly technical examination where you're, you're looking at each individual tissue and talking about a, a, a thousand different mechanisms for pain, but rather focusing on broader concepts, what she's able to do, um, her functional capacity, parts of her that are working well, why she might have full mobility in her neck, but yet has all of this constant stiffness. So I think reassuring explanations of structural integrity things like that are going to be important for mandy um, when it comes to addressing unhelpful beliefs limiting beliefs um, drivers of central pain things like that um, and then of course the other central mechanism that's relevant to the central pain neuromatrix is the map that we all have in our brain for our body parts so we've known for a long time that we have a representation 
in our brain in multiple areas um, of everything our joints can do. Um, and so every little angular motion that's possible is represented by neural connections that are plastic. And so when we think about this concept of compensatory movement, what might be going on here, when we first get pain or injury, the brain starts to protect. So it starts to avoid the use of painful tissues and re-engineer the movement strategy. Um, and it, we get, I, think, I think what tends to happen is the brain gets trapped in this sort of cycle, if you like. So it's stiffening the neck and protecting it. But at the same time, that's going to have a cost. So we know in life that protection is expensive, even conceptually, right? Protection monopolizes resources. It's a weighted sum of costs. So there's going to be costs with protection, but what's the alternative? An unwanted or unchecked or sudden movement that could cause injury. So the brain chooses protection. And so by stiffening the neck, it's a protective construct, but at the same time, it's reducing the sensory reporting regarding movement. It's reducing the degree to which our body refreshes and updates the brain on its position and motion. So we're now under mapping our body movements to our brain, if you like, and the brain's starting to lose responsiveness to certain motion possibilities now. And it's developing a really shrunken understanding of what the joint system can do. It's holding it in one safe mode, like a computer running safe mode. It has reduced capacity, but it's safe. And so that then, of course, deconditions the system, resulting in the greater need for protection. Right? And so more protection means less sensory reporting, means greater need for protection, which means less sensory reporting. And so, yeah, I think someone like Mandy gets caught in this cycle. Um, and that sort of really encompasses, I guess, both aspects of the central changes. And I guess this is where the proprioceptive awareness comes into to play for Mandy. So, so what are the key proprioceptive tests that you might do in this session? Absolutely. We want to, with someone like Mandy, look for sensory impairments or functional impairments, I should say, in sensory motor control. Um, we know from studies, for example, that uh, predicting a chronic transition, so a chronification of a problem early up, uh, these, these, set, these functional impairments are useful. So if someone has dizziness, balance impairment, all of that very early in their journey with after, say, a whiplash injury or chronic pain then, or, or, or a neck problem, they're more likely to make the transition to chronic pain. So... It's certainly very important to check these things in the beginning too. But you're looking at things like standing balance, um, and these can be done very, very uh, easily just in a bedside setting, if you like. So just in practice, there are obviously all sorts of high-tech, uh, you know, units you can use for this and things like that. But for, for, for everyday sake, we can look at a simple Romberg's test, eyes closed, a marching test, the ability of the patient to... Uh, close their eyes, march up and down on the spot and stay centrally orientated without tipping or turning. We can look at things like finger-to-nose tests, their ability to close their eyes, turn their head both ways and then find neutral again or find a central position again. Uh, things like visual pursuit um, and eye follow. So the ability to hold their eyes on your finger and slowly turn their head uh, without the target slipping. 
uh, from their fixation. And when you think about what's going on behind those tests, the patient has to sense their neck accurately to understand how their head is moving and then move the eyes in a way that directly offsets that. Otherwise, they lose a sense of clear vision, which you know clearly fits with Mandy's symptoms in many respects. Alrighty, so we've talked about uh, output mechanisms, we've talked about central nervous system processing mechanisms. Let's talk now on the final bit, which is the output mechanisms. What are the systems that are potentially impacted uh, in the Well, yes. Well, here is where we start to think of pain not as an input, not as a sensation, but as a behaviour. So modern pain science views pain as a behavioural response based upon the perceived need to protect. So not so much a marker of tissue damage, but a marker of the perceived need to protect. So if you think about what that might encompass, once there is a decision made that protection is needed, then we're going to change motor control. There's going to be a stiffer pattern of motor control in joints that are deemed to be potentially unstable or uh, unsafe. Um, there'll be a descending influence over the pain circuitry that turns it up. So we will amplify the pain response, and that will even include inputs that are normally innocuous, and so which is called allodynia. So now we start to see even movements that would normally not be painful or damaging being interpreted as painful for the purposes of protection. And this can start to happen broadly now, so with central sensitization. And so, so the brain starts to ramp up the sensitivity of the pain, so re-gear that system to uh, interpret inputs as painful, starts to stiffen the motor control program, and we even see changes in neuroendocrine function, so greater tendencies for inflammation and the release of you know, stress hormones and, and things like that. Um, so autonomic effects as well. So it's really a multi-system output for the purposes of protection uh, now in someone like Mandy. I want to talk a bit further about motor control. We know that uh, this is uh, compromised in people with, uh, with neck pain versus healthy subjects. What are the key tests for looking at motor control? Well, I've done a lot, done a lot of studies on this, actually. Um, where they've set up all these different constructs for assessing uh, motor control, such as um, velocity of head movement, how quickly and accurately someone can move their head, to following a target with the head and eyes, uh, to range of motion, to the flexibility, the smoothness of that motion. So the bottom line is this, all of those things we see are impaired in some way in someone like Mandy with chronic neck pain. Uh, the one that seems to stand out is flexibility. And when we think of flexibility, what do we really mean by that? Well, I tend to say to my patients, smoothness is control, stiffness is protection. So smoothness or fluidity requires joints to not move in just their primary plane. So let's just say rotation. Rotation also involves a whole range of what we call conjunct joint movements. And I remember this back from spinal biomechanics, but 
the joints are, are gliding in all of these different ways at a microscopic level. And so all of these little accessory movements to the joints are giving this sense of smoothness and flexibility. So not only does someone have good range, but they have smoothness through that range and a, and a fluid trajectory. So this is where someone like Mandy may have full range, but they have a very rigid motor pattern. In other words, the brain no longer has the level of fine motor control to include all of these little conjunct or accessory glides. And so um, that's thus the reason they probably feel stiff. Patients like Mandy will often trade speed for accuracy. So when we see a loss of confidence, for example, in fine motor control, we'll see a slowing down of neck movement just because oh, I can't move quickly and maintain accuracy at the same time because the system no longer has that, that capacity. And so uh, getting someone like Mandy to look at motion sequencing, for example, um, we know that, remember I said at the beginning, that C5-6, when it does show early signs of degeneration or even as it degenerates, we get increased sagittal plane motion there. Um, uh, and when someone bends forward, if someone's looking at a computer screen all day, and this is relevant to your technique, um, then they're likely to initiate movement at the less stable segments of the neck. So they'll just move forward with the lower neck first rather than a top-down cranially initiated flexion, for example. So if your listeners imagine now looking down, but initiating that with the chin as if you're going top-down segment by segment and not leading with the lower cervicals, which tends to happen with people with, instead of then you get this constant shear force on the disc and neural irritation and things like that. So just watching the way she does that. We know that people with chronic neck pain have reduced deep flexor muscle endurance and strength. So getting them to lie on their back and do a chin tuck and see if they can hold the weight of their head for a period of time. They often demonstrate weakness doing that. Another really important concept, I think, with cervical motor control is this notion of superficial muscles versus deep intrinsic muscles, so the core of the neck, if you like. We know that patients like Mandy will have a tendency to overactivate superficial muscles like trapezius, levator scapulae, and underactivate the deep intrinsic, it's like multifidi and rotatories and, and things like this. And that's because when you're holding your neck static all day and you're not using fine intersegmental movements all the time, these deeper muscles aren't getting activation. You're holding your neck statically. The guarding involves the long outer muscles to stiffen the neck. And those long outer muscles that don't have the metabolic capacity to be contracting constantly like that all day. So, of course, they're going to fill with trigger points, so areas of metabolic crisis, if you like. And so now you're getting constantly taut, knotted, painful muscles all the time. They're always after massage modalities and heat and all these other things to try and relieve that. But it really is the failure of the little corset inside that should be providing the ongoing stability intersegmentally that's causing the need for those outer muscles to go crazy and, and, and stiffen the neck into a rod or a column. So oftentimes it's not until we get patients to understand that get them to use a mindful exercise where they focus on rebuilding their motion sequencing on the movement sequencing and starting to use deep intrinsic like deep cervical flexors, uh, that they're going to overcome that and re-educate their brain 
to move their neck in a different way and reduce the activation of the outer superficial muscles. Otherwise, there'll just be a recurring need for treatment for those things forever. I've already touched on it a little bit, but we're going to move now into the, the management of uh, for Mandy. Um, clearly, you know, ongoing courses of deep manual adjustments probably isn't going to give her a um, uh, the long range, range outcomes that she or, or that we're after. Uh, we need to think about this very much from a neurological perspective, about motor control, about understanding central sensitization, about recognizing um, that she is hypermobile and unstable uh, with her intrinsic muscles. What are the key elements to management in this case? Okay, well, we're going to try and compress a lot of uh, information into a short time here, Anthony, but I think we've already touched on many aspects. Um, in terms of the way a clinician would select uh, treatment modalities here. Now, of course, to the outsider, often manipulation versus mobilisation is seen in a very binary way, that you're either doing manipulation or mobilisation. We know that it just doesn't work like that. There's this spectrum of force time profiles and speeds and all sorts of things in the way we place our hands on a patient. And so... Uh, with someone like Mandy, you know, if we really were to distill this down, our desire is for amplified proprioceptive awareness. So remapping Mandy's deep joint movements back to her brain, expanding her brain's understanding of the neck, giving her greater confidence uh, so that it can reduce the muscle guarding and the stiffness. And so... We're going to want to try and avoid, obviously, end-range rotation positions. Mandy's not lacking range of movement. She's not lacking flexibility in her tissues. She's lacking responsiveness to small joint movements. And so this is where this whole idea of manipulation doesn't, it doesn't need to be forceful. In fact, it's often not forceful. It's fast. And why is it fast? Uh, I think... You know, one of the things I try and get across to patients is that, that speed lengthens muscle quickly and it activates a special set of receptors or a special component of a muscle receptor that only is activated by fast movements. And that has evolutionary significance in that when your joint is moving quickly for some reason, you need a very amplified understanding of what's going on so you can act quickly. And so we have these muscle length sensors, spindles, so our brain understands where our joints are based upon muscle length data and how quickly muscles are changing length. So with Mandy, we might want to use more neutral sort of positions, joint positions somewhere around neutral with very small amplitude, though quick movements to try and amplify the proprioceptive reporting of her joint movements, but not be stretching tissues like nerve roots, joint capsules, discs. We've got to be mindful that there's probably some segmental instability there. Now, that's if we're going to go for the neck at all. I think one of, the, one of the things about understanding the neck from different perspectives is it gives us management flexibility. I'll give you an example. Let's say we've got a patient who we're concerned about their C5-6 segment. It's unstable. There's disc degeneration. Um, but we think there's a, a pain generator there. That they've got a C5-6-generated pain syndrome. But the C2-3 uh, with... Uh, you know, uh, it, it, it can handle more torsional loads. C23, 
and C56. And so we, we can apply gentle adjustments up there for neuromodulation, for example. Or there's good research to show that treating the thoracic spine, the upper thoracic spine, um, can help improve uh, control in the cervical spine. So with someone like Mandy, we want to we, we've got so much flexibility and creativity here. So we could be focusing on the upper thoracic spine at first and then using an activator towards neutral with slight off neutral positions to amplify proprioceptive awareness and reporting of the neck. Um, we can be using gentle midline mental procedures on the back but close to midline, for example. Um, we could be using you know, motor control exercises uh, such as novel type motor learning procedures. We need to get Mandy to try and learn something new with her neck like rolling a ball along the wall with her head, something that is going to force the brain to learn more about how the neck moves again in order to achieve the goal. So I think there's so much room for creativity with someone like Mandy, but ultimately I think if we can be getting her to understand more of the reasons for her ongoing pain, uh, that's going to that's gonna be a big part of it as well. Um, and we're more likely to have a successful outcome, I think. I really like the, the, the ball rolling exercise. And I, um, when I read it, um, I was a little bit confused about what it actually involved. And then I saw uh, the video given where an, uh, an auditory medium here. Can you explain a little bit more about what that exercise looks like? Yeah, look, I, uh, sure. Um, so the idea here is that a patient like Mandy is occupying a very repetitive, small subset of neck positions day to day. And even with adjustments, they, you know, they, can, they can have a very good response early but habituate to that quite quickly uh, depending on what's going on. So if we combine our role in terms of expanding the brain's understanding, presenting uh, forgotten little movements back to the brain uh, in ways that gets the, the brain's attention, uh, that can help ramp up the brain's responsiveness. But if we then want to consolidate that, really reinforce those changes, then something like this, and there are, there are many different you know, tasks you could get the patient to perform. This is just one. But let's just say you get a, uh, a sort of a ball, imagine a child's ball that's quite soft um, that you would give a little child to play with. Um, and you sort of, you stand up against a wall, so you clear a section of wall, and you hold the ball against the wall with your head. So you might start, for example, with the head on the side and the ball between your head and the wall. And the idea is you've now got to turn your body as you go and roll the ball along the wall. So, and you're often, you're turning your ball, your body in a full circle. So you're keeping contact with the ball and the wall. Now, if you imagine doing this, for example, you can imagine that it's going to have a tendency to slip down, that you might have to bend your knees a little bit and push up it a little bit or push down to the side. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a fine motor control exercise in a way. You've got to have this finer neck control to try and achieve the task. And to even make it more potent, you get the patient to do it with their eyes closed. So now they have no visual reference for where they are as well, and they've got to rely on uh, the sensory feedback from their neck uh, to achieve it and use 
segmental movements. I think that's the key, is that we've got to have good intersegmental control of the neck to achieve something like that. Um, and so that's why those types of exercises, getting patients to just, obviously, through Spinal Health Care Week, one of the great emphases is going to be on frequency of movement, so the micro-movements that we have to get back into our day. So just getting patients to get up from their desk regularly, tuck their chin in, uh, you know, roll the shoulders back, do little habitual movements that uh, will offload the tissues and then stimulate the neurology again. I can see that there's a whole lot of chiropractors that are going to be making their way to the local uh, $2 shop to buy a whole bunch of uh, children's inflatable balls just to uh, demonstrate that exercise uh, to patients. Anthony, thank you so much for your time over the, uh, the last two podcasts. Of course, this being part two of our uh, conversation, I think it's a really sort of um, enlightening and practical and sensible way to really uh, approach neck pain um, from a perspective of neurology, which is, of course, as chiropractors, what we should be all about. So uh, thank you so much for your, for your presentation. My pleasure, Anthony. I might just add one. I, I was going to sort of add it in there, but it got sort of skipped over, and that is the the, the importance of recognising that the vascular structures, so the vertebral artery being one of the most relevant, also has a collagen fabric. So. Just something for listeners to keep in mind, and that is that that if someone does show a very stretchy quality or a subtype of their collagen, then these are the types of people too that may well have uh, genetic or weaknesses in the in the in the fabric of their collagen. So this is another, I guess, very important reason why a subset of patients like Mandy, we're just going to be very careful with any sort of uh, end range manipulation because even though they might seem young and healthy and they're not on statins or they don't have a history of cardiovascular disease, their hypermobility does put them in a higher risk category. I'm sure everyone sort of you know learned that, knows it, but it's just I guess another relevant point for this patient case type, especially since these are the types of patients who will be asking for manipulation uh, for relief. Hey, and you have to get so, to the very end of that podcast to, to get that extremely salient and important. well done, Anthony. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for me. Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast has been helpful in your press for excellence. And I look forward to chatting with you again on our next ACA podcast.